2006, November 29th. Today is Lecture 44, Comments, which will begin in just a moment. Appreciate any comments you will have. Now, let's begin today's lecture. Today we're going to uh, literally look at a loose end of the solar system, namely comets. Begin with the key ideas for today. What are comets? Comets are icy visitors from the outer solar system. As we saw yesterday, the outer parts of the solar system have a lot of little tiny icy bodies. They're leftover icy planetesimals from the formation of the solar system. We've sent some spacecraft out towards that position, a spacecraft called New Horizons, but it's not going to get there to be able to study and just by passing by until like 2015. So how can we know anything about stuff out there? It's so far away. And the answer is, every now and then, one of those little icy bodies gets scattered by gravity, Neptune or even a passing star, and dives into the inner solar system. And when it does, the gases fly off it and it becomes a comet. Comets have very, very long elliptical orbits. It's one of the key points today. And they actually come in two types, called long period and short period, which is given sorted by the amount of time they take to go around the sun. And we'll see what the differences are between those. And where do they come from? Well, they are, as I said, icy visitors from the icy outer reaches of the solar system. The short period comets will turn out to come from the Kuiper belt, and the long period comets will come from the very outer reaches of the solar system at a place called the Oort cloud. Then we'll say something about the structure of comets. We've learned a great deal in recent years, not only from telescopic observations of passing comets, but a number of space missions that have flown past comets and actually smacked stuff into comets to be able to learn about their structure. There's four basic pieces. The inner portion is called the nucleus. That's the ice ball. It's surrounded by a cloud of gas called the coma. And then there are a pair of tails, which give the comet its characteristic name and shape in the sky made of both dust and ions, atoms which have had electrons either added or stripped off. And we'll say something about the nucleus. There's a model for what these things look like. They're an icy conglomerate, which is kind of a boring way of saying that comets are really kind of dirty snowballs. Not so much snowballs of water ice, but also carbon dioxide ices and mixtures of things like ammonia, methane, carbonaceous goop, sand and silicates and all kinds of fun stuff put together into a single chunk that comes down here, and as that stuff begins to evaporate off, that's what we see. So today we're going to be looking at visitors from the very outskirts of the solar system. In fact, some of these visitors come from the boundary between our solar system and interstellar space. So what happens as one of these things comes in? Well, a small chunk, and by small I mean kilometer size on average, up to maybe 10 kilometers across, one of these chunks comes diving in towards the sun. It comes from the outer reaches of the solar system, where the typical temperatures are like 30, 40 degrees above absolute zero, and they dive in close to the sun. Sunlight hits these things, and the gas and the solid ices flash into a gas immediately. It's a process called sublimation. So the ices suddenly become gases. Those gases catch the sunlight and catch the solar wind and are swept back away from the dirty ice ball at the center and form a very, very large luminous tail. Here's a beautiful picture, for example, of comet Hale-Bopp, which came through a couple of years ago. The ice ball itself is maybe a, a few kilometer size ice ball deep down in here at the front of the comet. The sun's pointing off towards the bottom of the screen. This tail, as drawn at this particular time, is many millions of kilometers long. Now, comets are fairly common visitor, visitors to the inner solar system. We get many faint comets per year. In fact, there was one that was just visible in binoculars this fall, but it was 
it was always cloudy, so I never got a chance to see it. In round numbers, we get about 10 or so small comets per year. Probably every 10 years, we get one that's bright enough to see with the naked eye. We were lucky a few years ago to have Hale-Bopp, which is shown in this picture here, and Comet Hayakutake, which appeared in, um, oh gosh, now even I'm forgetting. It's, it's getting long enough ago, 1999, 2000 or so. I'm sure I'm going to get emails about that one from my podcast fans. Uh, those are about as common as, we, as they get, so we're about due. We should be, on average, getting another bright comet through. We really haven't had a really spectacular naked eye comet in the better part of a, a, better part of a few decades. I think the really big hitter of comets was back about 1961-62 at Kiyosaki, and even I was too young to be able to remember that one. Now, the thing about comets is they suddenly appear from nowhere and then very quickly go away. They only appear as a comet when they're in the inner part of the solar system, usually inside the orbit of the Earth or the orbit of Mars for really big ones. So they don't spend too much time, less than a year. In fact, in most cases, the visibility window for a typical comet can often be measured in months or even weeks when it's bright. And so their sudden appearance before people understood the structure of the solar system and orbital dynamics was often very frightening. It was seen as a very portentous event. And so we actually have a lot of record of the really spectacular naked eye comets because they made such a deep impression on people all throughout history. Here's just a tiny sampling of depictions of comets that come to us from, a, from, from history. Here, for example, is a coin from the reign of Caesar Augustus. There's Caesar on, on the front side. And on the obverse side is a depiction of a comet. They usually have a star-like appearance. They appear bright on the head, and then there's the tail coming off. We actually don't know which comet this particular one is actually depicting. It could be a comet that never, in fact, has come back again. This is a depiction of a great comet that appeared in the year 1577. We've already met this comet because it played a significant role in the interest of astronomy of Tycho Brahe. This is a depiction from the ceiling of a, of a Turkish mosque. And over here is a study by an astronomer, Hevelius, showing the beginnings of scientific observations of comets. People tried to understand what they were. Hevelius, using telescopes as well as naked eye observations of, of comets from his period, made pictures of how the tail changed and developed over various times, even noting that through the telescope, the head often showed multiple bright spots, not just one occasionally. This was the beginning of studying comets, was trying to understand what these phenomena were. And they were, in many ways, quite mysterious. Their orbits, no one ever could predict the appearance of a comet. They would just suddenly appear and almost as quickly disappear from the sky. And so they were seen as, as again, as sort of portentous bringers of doom. And that image of comets as sort of portentous bringers of doom even came forward into the 19th century. Here's a French editorial cartoon somewhat whimsically about a great comet that appeared in the year 1857 in which they saw this comet as basically this shrieking banshee sort of impacting and tearing apart the earth while the moon sits by and laughs. And so this is a French cartoon, so it's probably ha ha ha, yeah, the earth's getting, getting its this time. This image is very common. Comets really sort of capture the public imagination in many ways when they're really bright and everyone can see them. But it wasn't really until the time of after Isaac Newton that comets started becoming a predictable phenomenon, at least to a first approximation, sometimes. In 1705, Edmund Halley, who we've met before, who was responsible for getting Newton to publish the Principia Mathematica, analyzed the observations of the comet, the great comet, of the year 1682. 
And he noticed that there were some similarities to the path of that comet compared to what you were able to piece together from observations from a comet that appeared in the year 1531 and again in the year 1607. And he noticed that these all seemed to appear about 72, 75 years apart and follow the same apparent track through the sky relative to the sun. Remember that Halley was working in the Helios, then new heliocentric system. So he made a bold prediction that the great comets of the years 1682, 1531, and 1607 were not separate phenomena, but were in fact the same returning object. And if that was true, then it should return again in the year 1758. Now, that'd be well after Halley would have died. So it was a very gutsy prediction on his part. It was therefore very electrifying to the European world when on Christmas Day in the year 1758, the comet appeared in the sky where Halley predicted it would. It was a beautiful proof of the utility of the Newtonian view of the world. Nobody in history had ever predicted a comet, and here Halley, using Newtonian mathematics, nailed one right, on the, right, right, right there. The orbital properties of this object, however, were completely different than the orbital properties of anything else seen in the solar system. The orbits are highly elliptical. We've been using this term eccentricity, or E, to describe the shape of the ellipse. 0.967, that's so long and thin that it really just stretches from the inner portion of the solar system inside Mercury where it's perihelion. Its aphelion is in the outer reaches of the solar system. The semi-major axis is only 18 astronomical units. Its aphelion is 0.6 AU, so it comes into the space between Mercury and Venus. But the period, because it's only 18 AUs, Kepler's third law tells us, should be between 74 and 79 years. Now, why isn't this exact? Why can't I just simply take a cubed, 17.94 cubit, take the square root, I should get the exact period in years. Why have I given it a range of five years? Because these are tiny little objects, and as the material melts and vaporizes off, it makes like little rocket jets, and it actually can speed up and slow down the comet and alter its orbit. It also turns out that Halley makes approaches by Jupiter, and Jupiter's gravity will alter its orbit. So you actually have to f do a full calculation year after year to predict past and previous appearances of Halley's Comet, as we now call it today. Halley's Comet is the most famous comet, and it turns out by even very careful calculation, we can project backwards in history and look at all the times that Halley's Comet has in fact appeared. Here's the orbit of Halley's Comet. It, in fact, projects out beyond the orbit of Neptune, well out into the realm of the trans-Neptunian objects. In fact, the aphelion point of Halley's Comet is up, would be near the Kuiper Belt, except it's fairly inclined out of the plane, and then it dives in into the inner solar system. It only appears as a comet when it's roughly between the orbit of Mars and the Earth for that very brief time on its roughly 75-year orbit that it spins down there. Remember Kepler's second law. Objects move very, very fast, at perihelion, very, very slow at aphelion, so that they sweep out equal areas in equal times. But we can use them now, the predictions of the model, to say, when has Halley appeared in the past? Well, in fact, we actually have appearances going all the way back to the first millennium BC. But some of these appearances actually play an interesting role in history. Here's an appearance which appears in the Nuremberg Chronicle of the year 684 AD. This is medieval, in fact, one would call even Dark Ages Europe. We're only about 200 and almost 300 years after the fall of Rome. And yet, this is a very surprising picture because it's a very naturalistic depiction of the comet. Not a flaming sword or a demon with fangs. It's a bright, stellar-looking, okay, somewhat stylized, stellar-looking nucleus, 
with this long tail sweeping back. The monk who, who drew this sketch with the dramatic appearance of 684 made one of the very first naturalistic depictions of a comet we've ever seen in history. In the year 1066, the comet Halley made another appearance over Europe. It was very bright in the European sky, and it made a tremendous impression as a portent. And this here, this is actually a section of the bio-tapestry. How many of you have ever been to France and been to the bio-cathedral and seen the bio-tapestry? No one? Okay. If you ever get to France, northern France, Normandy, go. It's really cool. This thing is 83 meters long. It was hand-stitched. Went around the inside of a cathedral. And on one section of it is a messenger talking to King Harold, then the king of England, warning him that the Normans, under a man named William, now known as William the Conqueror, had landed on the southern shore of England and was preparing for battle. At that same time, a number of people were noticing, in Latin, they marvel at the star. And here is a somewhat stylized depiction of Halley's Comet. The battle that Harold was being warned by, and I should point out that the bio-tapestry was made by William the Conqueror's wife, and her attendants, Harold was being warned of the upcoming Battle of Hastings, the last successful invasion of England in the year 1066, when the Normans conquered the country. <coughs> Another appearance of Halley's Comet that made, played a role in the art world is in the year 1304, when a painting by Giotto di Bondone, the Adoration of the Magi, was a triptych for a church in Italy, drew the classic Christmas picture here, where it's the season, and decided to depict the star of Bethlehem rather than as a star, but in fact made a depiction of Comet Halley, which had appeared in that very same year. This painting is interesting from a number of, of, of positions. It is actually a fairly realistic or realistic-like depiction of a comet in the sky, and it's unusual for the art of the time, which was very highly stylized. For those of you art majors, we'll also notice the use of perspective and the fact that all the individuals have individual appearances. Giotto de Bondoni was one of the most famous um, artists of the period. In fact, gave rise to the beginnings of modern realistic art. And of course, in the year 1910, Halley made yet another appearance in the sky. It was a bright naked eye comet. But now this is the age of photography and the age of ragtime. So instead of having portents of evil, it was actually going to be a Comet Halley rag, which was going to be sheet music is still available for. Beautiful photography of its passage. But still, this idea that comets were bringers of bad things made its way even into the appearance of 1910. Because the then new technique of astronomical spectroscopy showed that the tail was made up of glowing gases, in part. And one of those gases was the CN plus molecule. CN is cyanogen, which when you combine it with hydrogen, makes hydrogen cyanide, which is a deadly poison, the nasty purple gas. Well, people thought, oh my god, the tail contains cyanogen. And it turns out the Earth made a passage through the tail of Halley's Comet. And so hucksters made a tremendous amount of money selling cheap gas masks to people. This was the year 1910. People didn't understand poison gas as well. In fact, it was about four or five years later during the First World War, the first application of chemical warfare taught people how nasty that was. Of course, the tail is so thin that none of that, and there was no danger whatsoever of any of the comet gases making it to Earth, but it still shows that basically a sucker is born every minute, and if you're on top of things, you can make a few bucks off them. Well, let's get back to comets in general. People, when they began to study comets now, not as mysterious phenomena coming from appearing in the sky, but as predictable phenomena, noticed right away that the orbits very quickly fell into two families. Now, we've seen this before. We've been seeing dynamical families of objects that know about 
the gravitational origins of those objects. And the comets are no exception to this. There's a very, very strong dichotomy between the types of orbits you have. The first of these are a class of objects known as the long period comets. These are comets whose periods around the sun, once around the sun, are greater than 200 years. These have extremely long elliptical orbits, the most elliptical of which, in fact, are indistinguishable observationally from parabolic orbits. These may be objects which are only going to come by the sun once and may, in fact, escape from the sun. Or the, our ability to measure those orbits from the little tiny bit of the arc we get near the sun is so difficult to measure that we can't tell it from an exceedingly long ellipse. But the other end of that ellipse, if it did close, would close halfway to the nearest star, 100,000 astronomical units out. About 700 of these things are known, including comet Hale-Bopp. In fact, comet Hale-Bopp has a closed elliptical orbit and may, in fact, have been, a, have been visible in the sky if you were living, say, in Mesopotamia around the, 38th, around the third or fourth millennium BC. It's got a period of nearly 5,800 years. So these come from way out. They spend most of their time far beyond even the Kuiper Belt. The short period comets are those with periods less than about 200 years. They're distinguished by having elliptical orbits, but those elliptical orbits seem to be within about 30-odd degrees of the ecliptic plane, where the long period comets can literally come from any direction they want. The short period comets are all pretty close to the plane, so they know something about the ecliptic. They know something about the inner solar system. About 200 of these things are known, and because their periods are less than 200 years, Halley, which is a good example of a short period comet, they spend most of their time out in trans-Neptunian space in around the region of the Kuiper Belt. Both of these differences are so strong, they're clues to their origins. The short period comets, in fact, don't just not only spend time from the Kuiper Belt, they probably came from the Kuiper Belt. The Kuiper Belt is actually a reservoir of comets, which if you include the scattered belt, ranges between about 30 AUs, the orbit of Neptune, out to about 100 astronomical units. They get knocked into the inner solar system either by getting tickled by passing stars every now and then or due to gravitational encounters with Neptune or other large Kuiper Belt objects if you have a very, very close encounter for the latter. The latter is probably extremely rare. What, but they're already close to the ecliptic plane, so as they come plunging into the inner solar system, they may not get very far, but if they make a close passage by Jupiter, Jupiter can scatter them further into the deep inner solar system and close their orbit up into the short period area. In fact, some of these orbits can be nearly circular and actually live most of their time in the inner portions of the solar system between Jupiter and Mars and places like that. The long period comets come from a lot further out. They're thought to come from a place referred to as the Oort cloud. The Oort cloud is basically a scattered reservoir of where all of the rock balls and ice balls that were flipped out into the outer solar system by Jupiter's gravity during the earliest portions, or the, the late portions of the formation of the solar system, about 3.5 billion years ago. So in about the last billion years, if you look at the formation of the solar system, took on average a little under a billion years, from 4.5 billion years ago, ended at about 3.5 billion years ago, was the last major clean-out time. The last 10 or 100 million years was the epoch of very, very heavy bombardment. The last big burst of meteors everywhere in the solar system. Comets would have been everywhere because Jupiter was busy flinging stuff out. Jupiter probably cleared out most of the ice balls during this period, and a lot of them were put on extremely long elliptical orbits. 
that stretches out anywhere from 20,000 to 150,000 astronomical units. That's about halfway to the nearest star, Alpha Centauri. So the Oort cloud represents the very outer limits of the solar system when you transform from interplanetary space to interstellar space. It's estimated that there are nearly 500 billion ice balls in the Oort cloud. Very, very few of them ever get tickled into falling into the inner, inner portion of the uh, solar system. So we only get a tiny sampling. But if that tiny fraction can be extrapolated up, it's half a trillion objects. If you add up the, the masses of all these little tiny ice balls, you get anywhere from 2 to 40 times the mass of the Earth. So it's a huge reservoir of basically the leftover construction material from the outer solar system. This is where all the icy planetesimals that did not get incorporated into planets went. And it's a lot. It's a super Earth or even something that if 40 Earth masses, that's bigger than the mass of Uranus and Neptune combined. So it's a huge reservoir of material. These are the long period comets. When one of those comes in, you rarely ever will see it twice, even in human history. Some of the comets that are very bright, make a very close pass to the sun, they're spectacular, have two million year periods. So catch it while you can. It ain't coming back, at least not any time. May not, we may not, may not even be around as a species when they come back. So here's a, a sketch, a schematic of what this looks like. Now, you would not see the Oort cloud like this. This is making the, the balls, re ice balls really big to show what the statistical structure should look like. This little box down here, zoomed up, is the Kuiper belt. The Kuiper belt is a flattened zone. It's about a little thick belt between 30 and 50 astronomical units. This is where the short period comets come from. Pluto is a member of the Kuiper belt. Eris as well, the dwarf planets. The Oort cloud itself, about 500 billion comets, if you could see them, and they're all so faint you can't see them, they would look like a cloud like this. But of course, this depiction makes it look like you could never fly out of these things. In fact, these things are a kilometer across. The mean distance between them is measured in billions of kilometers apart. So like the other day when I said if I had a potato as a one kilometer asteroid, the next one should be, next potato-sized asteroid should be in Philadelphia. In this case, the next potato-sized or cloud thing should be well, somewhere out in the solar system. It's very, very empty because it's gigantic volume. This is, you know, the nearest star is about here on the edge of the screen compared to this. Well, the interior structure of comets, the that consists of four portions. The nucleus is a dirty snowball of dust and ice and, and junk, which is maybe a few kilometers across. This is greater than 99% of the mass of the entire comet. And it's the source of all the gas and dust that we see that sublimes off when it gets close to the sun. If, when it gets to the sun, this gas, as it begins to sublime off, forms a halo or coma ahead around the inner nucleus. So this is a picture, for example, from the Hubble Space Telescope of Comet Hayakutake. And this is a picture of the nucleus, actually, of Comet Vilt 1. Vilt 2, can't remember which one. The comet's coma is what we see with the naked eye, because the nucleus is way too small to see. It's basically just a low-density, gigantic cloud of dust and gas, and it can be about 100,000 kilometers across. These things are huge. That's why they're so easy to see with the naked eye. But they're just basically a big, thin gas cloud. As that gas cloud comes blowing off, sunlight and the solar wind catch it, and then streak, smear that material out into the long tail. So this gives us the comet tail. Comets have two tails. There's a dust tail. 
composed of little tiny particles of dust, dust, little grits, bits of rock, bits of carbonaceous gook, all kinds of stuff. Basically, little tiny things like between soot particles and small rocks about the size of pebbles. Those things catch the sunlight and they act like little sails and they get streamed back by the pressure of sunlight. This thing can form a bright dust tail probably between one and a 10 million kilometers long in a really big comet. And the color is white. It's shining by reflected sunlight. You've got lots and lots of little dust motes and rock bits catching the sunlight. The sunlight pushes them back, but they reflect the sunlight, and that's what gives it its appearance. If I took a spectrum of the dust tail, I would see the reflected spectrum of the sun. I'd see the absorption lines of the sun just because it's just simply sunlight bouncing off a rock. But then there's this other tail, and you can see in this beautiful picture here, of, again, this is Comet Hale-Bopp, a deep picture, this blue tail here. This blue tail is called the ion tail. It's a very, very thin, tenuous tail. It consists of atoms and molecules that have been ionized by ultraviolet radiation, stripping electrons off the surface. The, once these particles get electrons stripped off, they get a positive charge. The positive charge now couples them to the magnetic field of the solar wind, and the solar wind, this continuous magnetic breeze of particles that blows slowly off the sun, catches those ions and sweeps them back straight away from the sun. And so we get this separate ion tail which follows the solar wind. The dust tail follows a combination of the orbit and radiation pressure from sunlight. This tail can stretch as much as 100 million kilometers out behind the comet. To put that in perspective, remember the distance of the Earth to the sun on average is 150 million kilometers. So this thing is two-thirds of an astronomical unit long in a giant comet. The blue color at visible light comes from the fact that one of the dominant molecules being swept off is carbon monoxide. You strip an electron off it, it makes CO plus, plus because an electron's missing. And the emission lines produced by excited CO plus as a thin, hot gas produces emission lines, produces a big band of blue emission lines, but no red, green, or other colors. And that's what gives it its blue color. What I liked about Comet Hale-Bopp a few years ago was the first time I'd ever been able to see the ion tail. It had a big, prominent ion tail, and through binoculars, you could actually pick up the blue color of the ion tail. So there's two parts, dust and crud being swept back by the sunlight, and then ions being swept back by the magnetized solar wind. Now, the comet nucleus has only become known to us in recent years. They're small and irregular. The biggest one we know of is 16 by 8 kilometers, and that's Halley. This is Comet Borelli over here. But they typically tend to be low density. These things have densities of 0.2 grams per cc. That's much less than the density of water, which is telling us that this thing is probably porous. It's got holes and cavities in it. They're also extremely dark and cratered. They're the darkest things in the solar system. The surfaces only reflect about 4% of sunlight, and they're encrusted with carbonaceous black junk all over them. They look like really, well, like dirty snowballs. Here's some pictures of a couple of comet nuclei. This is Comet Halley, photographed during the 1986 passage by um, the uh, Giotto spacecraft, named for Giotto di Bondone. The sun's this way, and you can see the jets of material as the ices begin to sublimate into gases. They spray out, and the comet literally jiggers and jogs all over the place because there's a rocket effect. These things are kind of lightweight, and they get shoved all over the place. Here's Comet Wills 2, which was imaged by the Stardust mission. It's five kilometers across, very dark, but it's cratered. It's been hit by stuff over time as it's gone through the inner solar system. 
Well, we'd like to know what's inside a comet. And so last year, in 2005, a mission called Deep Impact flew past Comet Temple 1, one of these periodic comets, and launched an impactor with a camera on board into the nucleus. So here's what Comet Temple 1, which is about six kilometers wide, looked like. And they aimed the impactor right there in the lower left-hand corner. The impactor smacked into it head on and bam, blew out a huge artificial crater revealing fresh pristine material, which the spacecraft then swept through and cameras monitored on Earth and spectrographs. So we actually dug a hole into a comet and looked at the material that came spraying off. A lot of surprises. We found a lot of the ices we found, expected, but we found a lot of a compound called olivine, or sometimes referred to as green sand. It's a silicate compound found in asteroids of the inner solar system. No one knows where that came from. So there's a mystery. We really aren't sure why there's olivines on this thing. But that's a way to get an idea of what's going on on the inside of a comet. Comets are, in fact, dirty snowballs. They're icy conglomerates. They consist mainly of water ice and carbon dioxide ice, or dry ice, a bit of ammonia frozen into the matrix, dust and kind of chunks of rock, and carbon and complex carbon compounds. So all the missions that we've sent past the, the comets taking pictures, the deep impact mission, the pictures of all the stuff have shown us that what we're looking at is kind of a dirty snowball. Now, we haven't actually been able to get a picture, of a, an actual sample of a comet. We're going to have to wait until the year 2014 when the Rosetta lander actually tries to make it to comet uh, churyumov gerasimenko A couple of Russians did that one. Um, you get to name the comet for yourself if you discover it. Um, we'll land on it and actually do a direct sample. But you know, we don't actually have to wait. It is possible to get a good idea of what a comet actually looks like. Can you give me a hand here? Using some very simple materials. Get the water for me there, please. So I happen to have a few of those right here. Okay, we have to have some basic organic compounds, simple volatiles, which exist in various forms here on the Earth. I don't have to have any really special laboratory equipment for this. I do have to have some nice gloves to protect my hands mostly from the cold and from the very vaguely toxic things I'm going to be playing with here in just a second. But these are all actually fairly familiar household items. The first, of course, is water, good old H2O. A volatile from an oxygen-like um, carbon compound is carbon dioxide here in the form of dry ice. Very, very cold, which is why I'm wearing the waterproof gloves here. We have a little bit of uh, carbonaceous gunk. This is actually uh, Xerox laser printer toner. Get a little of that open there. I need some silicaceous junk. This is sand, not stolen from the cats. And of course, we've got a little cornstarch because there's complex organics and the recipe always calls for cornstarch. We don't know why. We don't ask why. And finally, we need a bit of ammonia. Now, unfortunately, I'm going to cheat here because ammonia is a volatile, really wickedly toxic gas at uh, earth um, conditions. But I have anhydrous ammonia, which is ammonia which has been dissolved into a water compound. Uh, window cleaner without the blue. So. 
we can use these things to make a comet. Now, I'm disturbed a little bit by the fact about how over the years when I've done this, and I apologize to the podcast listeners who aren't going to be able to watch me make a complete fool of myself like this, is how much the presentation of this is starting to be um, influenced by things like the Food Network. I feel like I should explain to you why I'm doing everything. So it's a combination of, it's kind of a combination of like, you know, Alton Brown and Emeril Lagasse with a PhD in astrophysics. Okay, so first we need to powder the dry ice because it comes to us from the uh, university stores in this rather chunky form. So let's put that in here. So I just chunked up about a half a brick is all you need. You can get this from any um, ice supply store. Um, in this case, I get it from university stores, but you could buy it from Capital Ice. So that's carbon dioxide. We now add water liberally. We need to put in a little bit of sand, a little bit of complex organics in the form of cornstarch as a binder, and then some black carbonaceous stuff. Spritz in a little bit of anhydrous ammonia, because most of it will have volatilized out in the outer solar system, but it's still present. Mix in a little more, and then using my hammer, mix well to mix everything together. Let's add a little more water. Ooh, yeah, this is a good one. <laughs> okay, it's starting to form. Oh, yeah. Okay. So I guess, you know, bam. <laughs> I'm not going to do it like you did. I'll get sued. Need gently. <laughs> oh, I'm in trouble now. Ah, my wife's going to ask me, why is my shirt black? Until it all begins to freeze into a solid matrix. Unwrap. And we have a comet nucleus. features of note, this thing is pretty nasty, toxic, and still should be handled with gloves. It's got chunks of dry ice stuck in the matrix. Dry ice has a very, very high sublimation temperature. When it goes, it goes into a gas, directly into carbon dioxide. As it does so, it will leave cavities behind, and so the resulting ice matrix will be porous. That's why it has a density of less than the density of water. As the stuff begins to dissolve, the water and the ices volatilizes at a higher temperature than the carbonates, and so it leaves behind the carbonates on the surface as a very, very dark surface coating, even though it's mixed uniformly in between. So, for example, relatively pristine material from the bottom of the thing will actually look fairly clean, but as this begins to melt and crack and craze, it will get progressively darker, which is why the surfaces of comets are only 4% reflective. Now, you can't really hear it from here, but this thing is volatilizing gas. Imagine this was out in direct sunlight. You would actually see material streaming off into space as the gases begin to sublimate and convert themselves from solid into gas phase. And, of course, there's little bits of rock, silicates sitting on top of it. Those are frozen in the matrix, but as the matrix volatilizes around it, it releases those little bits of rock. They trail out behind the comet and follow the orbit. 
Every now and then the Earth passes through the tail and we have a meteor storm. So a lot of the stuff we've seen over the last few days pretty much can be reproduced with very simple materials because these common materials are common throughout the solar system. We don't have to visit the outer solar system to see the original building blocks of the outer solar system. All we have to do is wait until one comes down to us in the form of a comet, and we've learned enough that I can even make one in front of the class. Any questions? Cool. See you all tomorrow. If you want to, you can come on up and have a look. Whoops. Hmm. I knew I should have rolled up my sleeves for that one. Oh, turn off my recorder.